0: Father, breathe on us through your Holy Spirit. Make your word alive for us and teach us what each of us needs to know. Transform us at each place in which each of us needs to be changed. May the power of your word be real to us in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. When we think of memorable events or memorable people, we we tend to think of people who have done something to change the world. We think of people in the the church history, we think of people like Chrysostom, Augustine. We think of St. Francis or Thomas Aquinas. We think of Martin Luther and John Calvin, we think of of John Wesley and John Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards. We think of William and Catherine Booth, of Charles Spurgeon, Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday. We think of, of people like Fosdick and Bart and Bonhoeffer of people like Francis Schaeffer, Billy Graham, C. S. Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr. Mother Teresa. And these are memorable people. We, we remember them because they held a high office or because they, they wrote a timeless piece of literature or they, or they, preached, a grand, they preached grand sermons or because they, they started a movement that, that triggered amazing spiritual and, and social renewal. And we think about them and we remember them and we value them and we reference them Because they did something that grabbed the attention of the world. That's what makes them memorable. And it's that very thought, that very idea about how we see people in the past and and the kind of people that we remember that, that intrigues me when we come to the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel and hear Jesus' declaration that in response to this woman who pours perfume over his head that what she has done will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. That's an amazing statement that Jesus makes. And and the question that comes to my mind is I want to know what's so important and what's so memorable about it. Why does Jesus declare that this woman's act will be remembered? What is it about what she does that draws such praise from Jesus? And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if Christ is important to us, then we need to know what is it about what she does that so pleases Jesus? Because maybe, maybe, there's something about what she does that pleases Jesus that you and I need to do. Jesus has gathered with his disciples and probably some other people at the home of a man who is known as Simon the leper. Now, how would you like to go through life with that nickname? Simon the leper. You know, I, I thought about that. I'm thinking of you know, a a grade school name that you get tagged with that you aren't all that thrilled about, but you just can't quite get rid of it. And it follows you all of your life. And here, this guy is known as Simon the Leper. But I have a feeling that, that Simon doesn't mind that name. Because more than likely, he is a man who at once had leprosy. And because of that, was separated from society. But he's been healed, probably by Jesus. And every time he hears Simon the leper, he remembers not just what he was, but in the grace of God, what he has become. And now his home has become a place where where Jesus comes and gathers with with others and they share a meal. Because Simon the leper opens his home. Mark doesn't tell us who this woman is, but... In John's gospel, he says that it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And she comes in and, and, and she pours this perfume on Jesus' head. I've been trying to picture this, what that would be like. You, know, you understand that in that day, the people didn't sit at the table to eat and chairs as we do. They, they reclined and sort of, sort of were lying to one side on an elbow and then ate with the other hand. And so Jesus would have been almost perpendicular to the floor... As she stood over him, or knelt over him, even, and you wonder, did she, did he see her coming and watch her unwrap this this bottle and pour the perfume, or did she come from behind him and surprise him? We don't know, but we do know that she pours the whole bottle onto Jesus. It's not unusual. Scholars tell us that people would come into a home and and there a few drops of perfume might be might be placed on their their head just to refresh them. As they came in from the dusty streets and prepared to eat. And so no one is is upset that she's there. And and no one's upset that she wants to anoint Jesus. But there is a great deal of, uh, of opposition that arises. Because of the quantity and the quality of what she uses to anoint Jesus. But despite the objections of the people in this room. Jesus commends her and is pleased with her you know you and i tend to be i think relatively guarded about our expressions of our of the spiritual part of our lives we tend to to value thinking about our spiritual faith more than acting on our spiritual faith and we, we call, sometimes we'll talk about people who, who are, are so responsive without thinking that we call them impulsive. And we don't mean it as a compliment. We tend to see acts of, of impulsiveness negatively. We tend to regret acts of impulsiveness. And it doesn't help if other people are badgering us and condemning us and questioning us about what we've done impulsively. But sometimes, sometimes we're so overwhelmed by gratitude about what God has done for us that we act impetuously. We act impulsively. We act recklessly. And even though we can get ourselves into trouble by acting impetuously and impulsively and recklessly, what amazes me is when I read this story is that Jesus seems to like it. And I suspect that Jesus is more pleased with our impetuousness than with our caution. Now, there's a place for planning and preparation. There is certainly a place for thinking about our faith. We need to think about our faith. It's important and essential. Jesus commands his followers to watch and prepare and to be ready. And many of the parables are, are, direct us to, to these very commands. But our watching... Are preparing, ought to exude a spirit of of recklessness and of impetuousness toward God. If our life in Christ is going to be defined by one or the other, I get the feeling that Jesus would rather have us be more impulsive than too cautious. That he would rather have us be reckless and generous than safe and guarded and i suspect that that's a struggle for most of us we don't know if mary really understands the sort of the cosmic impact of her act of love that she understands that she is preparing jesus for burial or if jesus is just interpreting that for her but she might understand she might understand more than the disciples understand if this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, then we know that, that she has a reputation for, for yearning to sit at Jesus' feet and listening to him. We see in, in Mary a gift of discernment that Jesus calls the greater thing. Because she's so enamored with listening to Jesus. Jesus. And now on this day, as she's seated around this table, and she comes and, and anoints Jesus, maybe her sensitivity to Jesus has led her to do this. She may not understand all that's taking, about to take place, but she may seem to understand that the end is near, and it's something the disciples completely miss. Maybe her ears and eyes and spirit are so connected to Jesus that she's listened so much to Jesus. She's so enamored with Jesus. That she sees. That which. Other people don't see. And she hears. What other people miss. And she senses. What other people. Are oblivious to. But whether this is her intent or not. We know that Mary gets so wrapped up in Jesus. That she can't help but respond recklessly toward him. Now, does that imply that, that every, every act toward, toward God ought to be reckless? No. There's a place for, for caution and, and consideration. But my question is, is there anything of reckless faith and reckless love in our lives? Do we ever feel so overwhelmed by gratitude for what God has done for us that we, we simply cannot contain ourselves? We can't help but doing something that other people might not understand. Is there any kind of, uh, any time when, when we are so overwhelmed with the grace of God at work in us that our response of love might be considered by other people as reckless, impetuous, and impulsive. Do we ever get that wrapped up in Jesus? And Jesus is interested in our willingness to live and love recklessly for Him because in many ways, it's an expression of, of our abandonment to Christ and our surrender to Christ. Christ. Mark is the only gospel writer who tells this story who also tells us that that Mary breaks the jar before she pours it on Jesus' head. And it's an interesting nuance, particularly when you realize that the word that Mark uses doesn't mean to just tap it on the table. It doesn't mean just to to crack it a little bit or just to, to pop off the end of it, as would be the normal practice. It means that she takes it and smashes it on the table. She couldn't superglue the thing back together if she wanted to. And there is, there, there is a powerful symbol of reckless love as surrender and, and abandonment to Christ in that picture. It's a kind of, of expression that doesn't hold anything back. It is faith and love that's fully in all the way. Nothing held back. She could have taken the bottle and poured a little bit and then recorked it. She could have even taken the bottle and poured the whole thing and then taken the bottle back. But she smashes it. Because it's all about Jesus. You know, we're pretty good at at pampering ourselves, at, at doing extravagant, even reckless things sometimes for ourselves, for our family, for our friends. And that's okay to do that. But when was the last time we did something extravagant and reckless for God and for his kingdom? When was the last time we gave our money recklessly to the church or to a missionary endeavor or to or, or, or to a, a local outreach, helping people in need? When was the last time we gave our time recklessly to the church or to a missionary endeavor or or to a local outreach helping people in need? When was the last time we gave our gifts and our talents and our abilities recklessly to the church, to a missionary endeavor, to, to local outreach, trying to help meet the needs of people? When was the last time the kingdom of God benefited from our reckless generosity. I think it would please Jesus for us to do that sometimes. I think it is a sign of, of our willingness to ab- be abandoned to ourselves and to surrender to Christ when we take these steps sometimes. Sometimes. And I suspect that our unwillingness to ever act recklessly or impetuously for Christ might well be an indication that we're holding back on Christ. But we need to understand that our that not everyone's going to be thrilled with our, with our acts of love. The gospel writers love irony. And it... It's so ironic at the beginning of this chapter, Mark tells us the Passover is coming and it's time to prepare for the high holy day of uh, when the Israelites turn their attention back to that time in, in, in Egypt, in Exodus, when God in His grace and mercy rescued them and brought them out of slavery and made them a people and a nation. It, it is one of the highest days of the year for the Israelites. But the people who ought to be most interested in preparing to worship God and express their gratitude to God are instead plotting to murder the Son of God. This high holy day, just just 48 hours away, and all they can think about is is killing this man who is healing the sick and, and giving sight to the blind and giving dignity to the poor and hope to the hopeless and teaching the word of God with great authority. And yes, they are hesitant to carry out their act of injustice at the time of the feast, but not because they don't have time to mess with it because they're so enamored with worshiping God, but because they're afraid that the pilgrims who have teamed into Jerusalem and are enamored with Jesus might riot. That's what's keeping them back. And the religious leaders aren't planning to arrest Jesus. They're planning to wait until after the feast is over. But when we come to verse 11, we discover that Judas speeds up their plans. He comes to them and says, I'll help you, and I'll help you do it now. And the event that triggers Judas's response is this woman's act of reckless love. That's not the only reason that Judas... Decides to betray Jesus, but it seems to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's interesting that Judas's decision to turn on Jesus by this act of the, that this woman commits is not because she's done something hateful or, or arrogant. She doesn't taunt them about how great she is. There's no arrogance in anything she does. It's just pure love. And yet in response to love is betrayal. And when, God, when we do what Christ calls us to do, when we live with a holy abandonment to God that, that often comes out in these, in these acts of reckless love, there are people who aren't going to like it. God's people have been perhaps most persecuted in the times when they have stood tallest as a witness of love and mercy and grace. And sometimes we attempt to do what's right, we live all out for Christ, and there are people who don't like it. For some reason, they feel embarrassed or guilty or uncomfortable or threatened, and the response is opposition. And sometimes the opposition is severe. But I suspect for most of us, the opposition will be more a case of of maybe misunderstanding or discouragement. For some people, the problem of, of reckless love is simply money. For some people, everything's about money. Every decision's about money. The religious leaders believe that they can they can get to Jesus if they just have enough money. Judas will betray Jesus for the right amount of money. And maybe as the people sit around this table and they, they they listen to to what Judas has to say and. And in that moment, maybe it makes sense to them as he condemns her and talks about giving the money to the poor, and they jump on board with him. And they accuse Mary of being wasteful, You're not doing the right things with your money. And we too struggle with a warped view of money. We believe that if, if not consciously, subconsciously, that money make us happy and secure and, and, and keep us in control. And money is often at the center of our discussions, even in the church, about what we can and can't do. Money can drive our perspectives and our objections and our approvals. But Jesus says that a person's life and and his church isn't measured by possessions. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. And James is, is irate that the church is It's catering to the people who have the most money. And history reminds us how easily money can corrupt. And it's very difficult to be reckless for Christ when we're enamored with money and possessions. Because we want to hang on to them. We want to use them selfishly instead of selflessly. Selflessly. Their argument sounds spiritual. What a waste. We could have taken this and given it to the poor. And and they could have given it to the poor. What the disciples say about the value of the ointment and and the need of the poor is perfectly true. But as one person said, Jesus is looking for uncalculating devotion to him. Rather than fine wisdom and balanced judgment in giving. The Lord, as Paul says, loves a cheerful giver, not a carefully calculating one. And I suspect that when Jesus says, hey, the poor you always have with you, you can help them anytime you want. Jesus is not degrading the poor or degrading the need to help the poor. All you have to do is look at his life and ministry. All you have to do is look at the Old Testament and at the center of the law is the idea of helping people who are in need. But I suspect that Jesus is saying to them, okay, fine, you want to talk about helping the poor? How much are you helping the poor? You want to take what she's given and give it to the poor. What about what you already have? How much of that is being given to help the poor? You can help the poor anytime you want to. The problem is you don't want to. So don't condemn her. For doing something for me. Reckless love declares I'm willing to give it all for Christ. I don't need possessions to be happy or to define who I am or to make me feel secure. If I lose it all tomorrow, it would be a struggle and I'd have to deal with the, the difficulty of that. But Christ would still be central in my life. As someone has said... People who have Christ and everything else have no more than people who have Christ and nothing else. And money can get in the way of our of reckless abandonment to Christ. But for others, the problem is not so much money as it is fanaticism that frightens them. It's okay to believe in Jesus, just don't be too serious about it. It's okay to follow Jesus. Just don't get caught, too caught up in it. It's fine to be a Christian, but keep it to yourself. It's okay if you want Jesus to be the center of your life. Just don't let it affect how you live and the decisions that you make. Because if you do a lot of of great things, it might make me look bad for one thing. But also I get nervous about you being a fanatic about Jesus. And sometimes the people who are most fearful of our fanaticism are the people who are closest to us. And I love the story of, of Robert Short, who, who was raised in a religious home, but in high school became an agnostic. He became such, such a, a committed agnostic that he began to cause trouble at school as he was a part of the science club and was taking them in some wild directions. And the principal became so fed up with him that he called in his parents and complained to them. As he and his mother were sitting at the kitchen table, tears running down her face, she said, I thought we raised you right. I never thought it would come to this, my son, an agnostic. He went to college and through the influence of some Christians, gave his heart to Christ and felt a call to ministry. He came home one weekend and shared with his mother, seated at that same kitchen table, and the tears began to pour down her face. And she said to him, I thought we raised you right. Right? I never thought it would come to this. Our son, a fanatic. And sometimes that's how it is with people. But Christ says, do it anyway. I'm sure that the stinging rebuke of the people sitting around that table hurt her deeply. You can almost see as as their words pound her, you can almost see her deflate spiritually and physically and emotionally. Her excitement is gone her joy and giving has been ripped from her and instead of elation, she feels foolish and embarrassed and probably thinking she's made a terrible mistake and she begins to slink away in shame and humiliation but Jesus stops her and calls her back and says to everyone else seated there, stop it. She's done a beautiful thing. She's the one person here who's really thinking about me. And what some people see as a waste, Jesus sees as an act to be remembered forever. And what's interesting is that if we give ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ, our time, our money, our possessions, our, our gifts and abilities, our education, our minds, our relationships, if we go, give it all recklessly in love and gratitude to Christ, we will find that our hearts are not closed to people in need, they're more open to people in need. But the problem is not giving too much of ourselves to Christ at the expense of others, the problem is giving too little of ourselves to Christ. At the expense of others. The problem's not that we are too reckless in our adoration and commitment to Christ, but that we're too cautious and hesitant about following Christ. And it's our cautious hesitancy that will lead us to not care about people in need. It's that cautious hesitancy about abandoning ourselves to Christ that will make us apathetic about the world. Because our hesitancy to give generously and recklessly of ourselves to God is really a sign of self-centeredness. And a sign of our unwillingness to surrender all that we are and all that we have to Christ. And if we won't surrender to Christ, if we won't give of ourselves to Him, We aren't going to give much of ourselves to other people. In a few short hours from this event around the table in Simon's house, Jesus will gather his disciples for another meal. It will be their last meal before Jesus is arrested and crucified. And on that second night at that second meal, Jesus in the bread and the wine offers them his broken body and his shed blood. And he tells them to remember this night. Remember his sacrifice. Remember that every time they gather at the table, remember what he's done. And I don't think you can separate these two meals. I don't think you can understand Mary's act of reckless love until you begin to understand Jesus' ultimate act of reckless love. It's Jesus' love that gives meaning to Mary's love. It's Jesus' willingness to go to the cross that makes Mary's willingness to give of her possessions so memorable. And today, as we prepare to gather at this table, We remember. We remember Jesus and we remember Mary. We remember the cross and we remember the shattered bottle. We remember Christ's ultimate sacrifice and we remember Mary's generous sacrifice. And as we remember what Christ has done and remember what Mary has done, we hear the cross calling us to come and sacrifice to shatter the bottle of our lives and surrender, to throw caution to the wind and in gratitude for Christ's grace give ourselves recklessly, impetuously to Him. May each of us be people who know what it means to live recklessly for Christ because of what He's done for us, Holy Father? We give you thanks today for for the cross and for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. We also give you thanks for, for, for Mary's sacrifice. And we pray today that you will help us to be less guarded and less cautious. And more open and abandoned to you. With our love and our gifts and our possessions and our very selves. Father, as we prepare to to celebrate this feast, we pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit's blessing upon the bread and the wine of which we are about to partake. We pray, Father, that your Spirit will so fill these elements that as we eat them and drink them, that your Spirit will Once again, fill us. Lord God, we thank you for the cross. May we be people who remember and hear your call as we receive. Amen.